We've got two readings this morning. The first is from Zephaniah chapter 3. Sing, daughter Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. I will remove from you all who mourn over the loss of your appointed festivals, which is a burden and reproach for you. At that time, I will deal with all who oppressed you. I will rescue the lame. I will gather the exiles. I will give them praise and honour in every land where they have suffered shame. At that time, I will gather you. At that time, I will bring you home. I will give you honour and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your very eyes, says the Lord. And the second readings from Luke chapter 3. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptised by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptised. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptise you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lucky. Well, this is the third Sunday in Advent, um, as we know from the candles. Um, and on the third Sunday in Advent, it's traditionally the Sunday that you focus on joy. Joy, the joy of the anticipation of the coming of the Messiah. The great uh, German theologian Karl Barth defined biblical joy as 
are defiant nonetheless. He said, it's God's full stop on the world's anxiety. Even in the midst of pain and confusion, in the confusion in the world, we, we stand in front of the confusion, in front of the pain, in the midst of the struggles, and we have a defiant nonetheless. Last night, the MSO Melbourne Symphony performed Handel's Messiah, and I watched it on YouTube. They live-streamed it, which is kind of cool. It popped up on my feed and says, in 15 minutes, the MSO is about to start. The MSO. So I just turned it and watched it, a lot of it. The Messiah, if you've never watched it, is about three hours long, the orchestra and choir and soloists, and it follows a series of Bible readings, really well-thought-through Bible readings, to tell the story of the Messiah. And in the second section of the Messiah, um, the themes turn dark. Handel focuses on the passages about the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, the book of Lamentations, which is the sad, one of the saddest books, if not the saddest book in the Bible. And then Psalm 2, uh, which has li- you know, lines like, Why do the nations rage? And then there's an extended section from the tenor uh, singing this one line from Psalm 2. You shall dash them like a potter's vessel. You shall dash them like a potter's vessel. You know, it goes on and on. I won't do it. That's why I'm not in the, the lead singer. But, um, but then after you shall dash them like a potter's vessel, the choir stands up and they sing the Hallelujah Chorus. The defiant, nonetheless, put to song. And the audience stand up, as is the tradition, and the trumpet plays like an angel over the top. Hallelujah, the word, is an expression of praise and joy to God for what he's done to bring salvation to the world. And this is the story of the Ark of the Bible. Despite all that is wrong with the world, God's people do not lose hope because they know that God has the ultimate victory in the end and that they are on God's side and God is on their side. He, has, he loves them and hasn't abandoned them. When the Israelites, they're, when they're freed from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt, they sing for joy. They've left Egypt, they're wandering in the desert, it's hot, the children are crying The old people are struggling, they're thirsty and hungry, they're living out of tents with no permanent home, but their joy is not determined by their immediate immediate struggles, their joy is determined by their trust in God and what he has done to set them free and their hope for their final destination in the promised land. And our reading from Zephaniah, the prophet Zephaniah, is an advent reading for today, and that is our defiant nonetheless. At the start of the book of Zephaniah, uh, the prophet speaks of moral corruption in the city of Jerusalem. He tells of God's good order being in reverse. He pronounces Jerusalem's judgment because of their sins of arrogance and corruption against God and against the people, and they're not even accepting the rebuke. And so Zephaniah says, the whole world will be consumed. God's going to send an army from Babylon to bring them down. 
And it sounds terrible. The world is ending. God's holy city will be destroyed. In fact, the surrounding nations, they also will be caught up in this. The Assyrians, the Philistines, the Moabites, they're in trouble as well, says Zephaniah. God is going to purify the land and the people with fire. However, there are a small remnant of a few faithful people in Jerusalem who are worshipping God as God wants them to, living as God wants, living in righteousness and justice. And so Zephaniah offers them good news, a message of hope. He's able to give them a defiant nonetheless, which is that God will rescue them because they have been faithful and trusted him. And on that day of salvation, says Zephaniah, Jerusalem will sing in joy and shout aloud and rejoice because Yahweh is near to them and is removing their oppressors and taking away their shame. God has brought his justice to Jerusalem in order to purify and restore them and he's going to heal them and rescue them from the violence and evil. It's a bringing together of God's justice but also his love. And Zephaniah says God is going to find a way to bless the nations as well. God is going to sing to them and celebrate himself with songs of joy. God is going to gather up the outcast and the lonely into his family. This is a fulfilment of the covenant made with Abraham all all those years back. And of course we read this uh, prophecy out at Advent because Zephaniah is anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the ultimate fulfilment of these promises. They're going to be fulfilled in the short term, but also ultimately when Jesus returns, or when Jesus comes, sorry. So, see, 2021, if we think about ourselves now and this idea of joy, it's coming to an end and we're sort of stumbling across the line at the end of the year. We're exhausted Last week, you know, I I couldn't come to church because I got a text message the night before. You have been exposed. You have been at a cafe or something, you know. Isolate, get a test. And we're all sick of all of this. We've had a disrupted existence for about two years now. And some have suffered a lot more than others. Our mental health has suffered. Loneliness has set in. School has been a huge challenge. For some of us, our physical health is worse. Some have lost their jobs. We have not experienced church community like we wanted to. But this morning's sermon is about how our Christian faith empowers us to stand in the face of all these kind of struggles and have joy. It's about how God offers to put an end to our anxiety. It's about being defiant in the face of all that gets us down. If we turn to the story of John the Baptist in Luke 3, we see a story of a wild man prophet, a wild man, John the Baptist, a prophet leading a Jewish renewal movement. He offered a powerful message of hope and joy in defiance of the people's struggle. Picture this. He intentionally dresses like Elijah, the prophet. He has long hair, probably dreadlocks, we assume, wore clothes made of camel skin, lived in the desert as a kind of a spiritual exercise. He eats locusts and wild honey. And he's also Jesus' cousin. Let's not forget that. 
His mission is to take the Jews from being either a lazy and disengaged or, or really, really serious and missing the point kind of religion or faith to a passionate and committed new beginning, living as God wants them to live. He wants them to rededicate their lives to God and wait to see what God is going to do in the world. John's a reformer, but he's also more than a reformer. He's launching Jesus' mission. He had one foot in the old age, you know, as he's dressing like Elijah, but one foot in the new age as he's launching Jesus' mission. He's the last of the great prophets, the transitional figure to Jesus. And so he launches... People, the crowds are gathering to him to join in with his, 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 his program of re- reform. And then he launches with his sermon to all the people that want to be baptised and he says, this is not the best way to start a sermon. Imagine if I had done this before. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Imagine starting, you know, looking at the crowd and saying, you are the children of poisonous snakes. You're not the children of Abraham. So they've got only one option, which is to turn from their sin and be baptised. Just because they're Israelites does not mean they're safe with God. They might be God's children by name, but they're not children, God's children by nature. That's the problem. John says, look, God can replace you with stones if he wants to. Don't think you're special. God's axe is already at the foot of the tree and will cut down any tree that does not bear good fruit and and the branches will be thrown into the fire of judgment. So there's an immediate crisis. I don't know how you would gather a, a movement by telling people what's wrong with them. But anyway, this is what he's doing and it's working. There's an immediate crisis that needs responding to. Verse 10, what should we do then? The crowd asks. See, when God visits people, a response is needed. And that's, that's what's happening here. Verse 11, John answers, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. This is not rocket science. You know, we don't need Elon Musk to fly us to Mars to solve this problem. You know, it's not complicated what God wants from his people. John's not saying anything new. He's saying, live in the way that Moses told you to live. Feed the hungry, clothe the naked, basic stuff. And they should have been doing this already, but they hadn't been. And it feels like their time is running out. It's it's running out the way John's talking. God's got the axe ready to chop. The tax collectors speak up. What should we do? These are Jewish tax collectors working for the Roman Empire. They're, they're not liked because their tempta- temptation is to, you know, get a bit of extra. You know, the, the, the Roman Empire say, tax them 10% and they tax 15 just to get an extra five or put a bit in their own pocket. So people don't like them. John says they should be fair in their dealings. Tax the actual amount they should tax. Just be good people. And then some Jewish soldiers asked what they should do. Everyone wanted in on the action. So John says them to do what you know is right. Give generously to the poor and treat people fairly. Your actions make a difference to the people around you, he says. 
You have the power to change people's lives. Did you ever hear the story about the skeptic who looked up to the sky and shouted to heaven, God, if you're there, tell us what we should do. Back comes a voice. Feed the hungry, house the homeless, establish justice. And the skeptic looks a bit alarmed. He says, just testing. Me too, replies the voice. God cares about the way we live. For those people coming forward for John's baptism, they had to realise that they had to make a public declaration and a commitment to be God's people. They were to be Israelite, the Israelites is the way God wants them to be Israelites, lights to the world, a living display of God's justice. What they had to do was clear, live righteously, care for the poor and needy, don't let people go hungry, receive the refugees. This was their core business. If they lived this way, then Israel would be living as God intended. But John knows that this is not going to be enough. And this is why he knows that his ministry of moral reformation is only going to take them so far. His greatest mission was to announce the coming of the Messiah. Now, the crowd are a bit confused because he's so powerful in what he's saying. They think he's the Messiah. But John quickly corrected them and he says, somebody else is coming. Someone superior to me, someone superior in status and power. He says, I'm not going to even be able to tie his shoelaces. There was an old rabbinic saying which was, every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal thong. Untying the sandal was such a low act that even slaves weren't expected to do it. But John says the Messiah will be so great that he won't even, John, won't even be, be good enough to untie his shoe, shoelaces. He says, John's, John says, My, I'm, I, did, I did baptism with water, but this Messiah is going to baptise with the Holy Spirit and fire. He will pour out the Spirit of God in generous amounts. He will purify people by fire. Their sins will be forgiven. And today we baptise Heidi and we trust that God has poured his Spirit out on her. That she will travel through life with God. She's been baptised with the kind of baptism that John was anticipating through Jesus. Baptism has marked that she has been received into his arms. No matter what struggles she faces through life, and she will because everyone does, she is safe with God. So if you haven't been baptised, I, I encourage you to get baptised. So the announcement of the coming of the Messiah from John is John's defiant nonetheless. He's saying, you guys are in trouble, the axe is there, but there's a Messiah about to come. For a people who are in big trouble, a sinful people who are a moral failure, unjust and selfish people who deserve judgment, nevertheless, in the face of all this, a saviour was about to appear at any moment. And this is good news. It's a full stop on their anxiety, on their spiritual worries. 
And Luke tells us that John the Baptist was so excited. He knew what was going on. So excited that when um, Mary, Jesus' mother, goes to tell the pregnant uh, Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mother, when he was in the womb, that John jumped for joy. He's so excited. And his mother was filled with the Holy Spirit. The birth of Jesus is good news that brings great joy. But we have to remember, what are we talking about when we're talking about joy? Verse 17 clarifies something. John says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Yes, he will be a loving saviour who gathers his people to himself, but he's also a judge. He'll be a righteous judge who will pour out his wrath on those who reject him. And then it says, And with many other words, John exhorted exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Now, this might not sound like good news. It sounds sort of scary. But it is meshed in with the gospel, this idea. If we cannot be sure that in the end evil is going to be defeated, there is no good news. So what does this mean for us, this story? Advent 3, joy, Zephaniah, John the Baptist. Christian joy doesn't mean everything's always happy and easy. Let's just remind ourselves what happens to John. Not long after Jesus began his ministry, John is speaking out against Herod for his moral corruption. So Herod chops his head off. Remember what happened to Jesus, the one who we have joy in, the bringer of eternal joy. He's arrested, tortured and put on a Roman cross. Remember what happened to the Apostle Paul who spent a lot of his ministry in jail. But he chose joy. He said in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 10 that he was full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. Okay, this is what we've got to get right and I think the Western church gets wrong. Christian joy isn't some fake, let's pretend, let's just have coffee machine in the foyer and, and do this and jump around and, and be smiley-smiley every Sunday and pretend like there's nothing wrong ever. Christian joy isn't like a promise that God's going to make your life awesome. Christian joy isn't, you know, uh, you know God's always going to um, give you the best career and an amazing love life and great marks at school. That's not Christian joy. That's something else. That's fake. Christian joy is about Jesus, what he's done for you, and the promises of God, that you're safe with God, and that whatever you face, the struggles you face, God, in the end, has got you safe, and you're going to have an eternity with him. Christian joy acknowledges the pain. Christian joy weeps with those who are weeping, suffers with those who are suffering. And yet in the face of the world's problems, in the face of our personal crises, we have joy because we know what God is doing. Even if we die, we shall be safe in God's hands and have eternal life with him. And this makes Christian religion different from the other religions. Tim Keller writes... While other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys but foreseeing the coming sorrows, 
Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of this world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. And he writes this as a man with stage four pancreatic cancer. Paul sums this up by saying in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I want to finish by showing you the power of Christian joy, the power of the defiant nonetheless, the power of God's full stop on the world's anxieties. Back in 2015, there was a horrific tragedy in Charleston in America, you might remember it from the news, when a white supremacist gunman walked into an African-American church and shot and killed nine people having a Bible study. One of the people killed was Clementa Pinkney. Pinkney, I think you say it. Clementa Pinkney. So, President Obama gave the eulogy at the funeral. I want to show you how Obama, in the midst of the pain of this tragedy, was able to offer the congregation and the whole of America a defiant nonetheless in the face of the horror that they had experienced. That's what I felt this week, an open heart. <coughs> that more than any particular policy or analysis That's right. is what's called upon right now, I think. What a friend of mine, the writer Marilyn Robinson, calls that reservoir of goodness beyond and of another kind, that we are able to do each other in the ordinary cause of things. That reservoir of goodness. If we can find that grace, anything is possible. If we can tap that grace, everything can change. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves.
Sunday found that grace. Cynthia Hurd found that grace. Susie Jackson found that grace. Ethel Lance found that grace. The Payne Middleton doctor found that grace. Tywanza Sanders found that grace. Daniel L. Simmons Sr. found that grace. Sharonda Coleman Singleton found that grace. Myra Thompson found that grace. Through the example of their lives, they've now passed it on to us. May we find ourselves worthy of that precious and extraordinary gift. As long as our lives endure, may grace now lead them home. May God continue to shed his grace on the United States of America. Yeah.